Stories I want to lead off with here are not the most prominent, eye-catching, headline-grabbing stories, but they are of particular interest to me because they go to a point or a topic that is always on my mind to one degree or another and that I, I really want to delve into a little bit deeper and a little more broadly this first segment of Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. Catch us on Facebook. Search for Closing Argument with Walter Hudson and our page will pop up. Like the page. Set yourself to be notified when we go live, when we post things. And uh, your life will be greatly improved as a result. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omland taking your calls and producing the show. So the first story I want to get to here, Screamtown, is a one of these outdoor haunted attractions where you go. I, I don't think I've been there. I might have been. If I was, it's been like 10 years or something along those lines. But, you know, you walk around in the woods and people, actors in costumes jump out and scare you is basically the deal. And people pay to do this. People go to pay to be scared. Screamtown has been shut down as of today. And the reason why Screamtown was shut down is because its management, its owner, Matt Dunn, put out a post in a closed Facebook group that was for his employees, his actors only, and he, he said something that was, without a doubt, objectively racially discriminatory, or at the very least, discrimination on the basis of national origin. What he said was, we have a zero-tolerance policy for Somalis. And the broader context here, the, the actual quote, note that we are having a zero-tolerance po policy with Somalis. Other guests, you can make your best judgment call, but absolutely zero-tolerance with Somalis. And the context for this statement was he was basically asking his employees to be on the lookout for certain disruptive behaviors that they had been having issues with, with groups of young kids who presumably, given the nature of this post, were Somali. And so he's saying, look out for these behaviors, make sure you follow them, make sure you call security, call the police, and, and make sure that it's dealt with. And then he, as an addendum to that, which if he had just cut it there, he'd have been fine. But as an addendum to watch out for these certain behaviors, he said, Note that we have a zero-tolerance policy with Somalis in regard to these behaviors. Everybody else, you can use your judgment. Pretty clearly, I mean, if you were trying to get in trouble with the whole anti-discrimination forces of the status quo, you couldn't do a better job. Like, if his goal was to shut his business down under, these, under this pretext of anti-discrimination, he couldn't have done a better job of crafting a statement that would have that effect, and indeed it did. The thing was shut down today. And as you read the account at the Star Tribune, it's it's reflective of, because there's all these government officials, the county sheriff, the Carver County Sheriff got involved, 
Carver County attorney, the Carver County board chair, Gail Diggler, said in a statement, Carver County unequivocally does not allow anyone in its organization to discriminate based on national origin or race, and we most certainly will not contract with any business that discriminates or has discriminatory policies. And what jumps out to me is how responsive, even in conservative Carver County, Carver County rivals my own county of residence, Wright County, for the title of most conservative county in the metro, if not the state. There's this rivalry. Not the state. There's this rivalry between Carver and and Wright over who gets to claim that. But Carver County is a very conservative area, very conservative county. And yet, even there, you got all the public officials jumping out of the woodwork to take action in response to the horror of this discrimination against Somalis. And look... Is it a good thing what this Dunn character did? No. Was it stupid? Absolutely. Does it violate the law? Apparently. And should they take action? Perhaps. But what strikes me is the the level of responsiveness, which seems to indicate or be indicative of the level of importance that the culture gives to this sort of social violation, this, this sort of coloring outside the lines of what is regarded as appropriate behavior. There there are a lot of things that we tolerate in society. A lot of things that we tolerate in our culture that we have no problem with in terms of how people think, what people say, how people choose to act and believe. But when it comes to this one area, racism or discrimination, irrational discrimination of any kind, it's, oh, something simply must be done and it must be done right now. And I have the audacity to ask, why? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it so important? Because it occurs to me that racism and discrimination based upon demographic characteristics, discrimination based upon national origin or religion or whatever the case may be, while certainly irrational, while certainly immoral, while certainly inappropriate, in the large scheme of things, is a B-list social problem. In a sane society, it would be condemned, but not really given the level of importance that we seem to grant it in the modern day under the status quo. And when I when I spend some time thinking about it, you know, because I ask myself the question, you know, as a minority myself, as a black man, what threat does racism and discrimination really pose in my life? You know, 10 years before I was born, my parents, my dad was black, my mom's white. My parents could not legally get married in certain states in this union. Now, that's a problem, right? Like, that's an A-list social problem because the state is actually initiating force to prevent you from taking actions in pursuit of your own values and pursuing what is of value to you. You are being forced, you're being kept from doing that which you want to do by the state, which which has the monopoly on force and the ability to intervene and keep you from taking action. That's a problem. But when it comes to these private discrimination issues, particularly, I mean, in this case, you've got the, the business aspect of it, the business policy and public accommodation, and that's a whole other rabbit hole we can go down at some other point. But what I'm particularly interested in is this notion that if we can sniff out 
that somebody has a racist thought, or if we can sniff out that somebody has a discriminatory inclination for whatever reason, that it's this aha moment, that the the spotlights of the culture shift over and focus on that person, and they're they're condemned as if they are irreparably evil and must be cast out from society like some sort of leper from ancient times because they had a bad thought. What informs that? What is behind this singular focus on racism? Tomorrow night, we're going to have uh, a guest in here, uh, Nathan from Minneapolis, who's called in on a number of occasions. He describes himself as a progressive. He's a pastor. He has a piece in City Pages, which we'll we'll throw out a, a link to on the Facebook page. We'll tweet it out sometime tomorrow so you can take a look at it. And we're going to spend an hour with him talking about the efforts of progressive evangelicals to try to bridge generational gaps and bridge racial gaps and focus on making the world a better place to live. Sounds fantastic, doesn't it? One of the focuses, as you read this piece that Nathan wrote in City Pages, one of the focuses is racism and issues of racial justice and Black Lives Matter. And it's elevated above, and I can guarantee you this is going to be the source of some contention tomorrow night, it's elevated above sin. It's elevated above property rights, above your personal liberty, above basically everything of supreme importance is whether or not somebody is discriminatory or whether or not society is discriminatory. Why? Why is that the, why is that the, the end-all, be-all sin? The greatest of all human sins. Somebody thinks poorly of someone else because of the color of their skin or because of their gender or because of their, their sexual orientation or what have you. I have a theory. And I think it's a theory that very quickly when you examine it, proves to be correct in terms of why there's this cultural focus on discrimination and why it's regarded as the end-all, be-all, supreme sin, the supreme concern of all mankind, and the, the singular focus of public policy, and one reason why you'll get every official, local, state, and federal, to react whenever somebody can be called out on the carpet as having engaged in some form of discrimination. And my theory is this. Racism and discrimination are things that occur within the human mind. That's where it originates. That's where it starts. That's where it's located. And so if you can effectively criminalize racism and effectively criminalize discrimination, then what you've done is you've expanded the domain of the state to include the mind. And that gives you unlimited power because if you can can control the mind if the mind becomes your rightful jurisdiction your rightful domain in which you can intrude and you can engage and intervene and disrupt then there is no limiting your power and as, as you go through the star tribune reporting on this you know it seems at first glance it seems rather uneventful in terms of the the government reaction people react pretty much the way you would expect them to the county shut the the place down they canceled their contracts but when you look beneath the service you realize that there's this infrastructure of relationships where they have to hire the the, the sheriff in order to provide them with 
security and they have to uh, get permission from the county in order to hold their event in the first place. And everything's contingent upon all these approvals. There's all these mechanisms. There's this infrastructure of control in place for precisely this type of scenario so that there can be this government intervention in what? What is it that they ultimately shut down here? A haunted hayride. A haunted maze. It, in response to, in response to somebody being discriminated against, a group of people being discriminated against, you no longer get to go to Screamtown. Screamtown no longer gets to offer its wares, to offer its services to the broader public. Now, their discrimination was made public. Everybody knows that it's there, right? So if, if it's of importance to you, like if you care about it, if you don't want to patronize them because their owner is a racist, then that's a choice you can make. But that's not good enough for our modern culture. It's not good enough to just leave it to you to decide whether or not you're going to patronize a place. No, we have to, we have to intervene. We have to punish. We have to crucify. We have to shame in the public square. We have to throw tomatoes at the guy in proverbial stocks in order to shame him and condemn him and cast him out as a result of having a stupid idea. And it is a stupid idea, right? Like the idea that I'm, we're going to focus our, poly, our, our policy exclusively on Somalis or any group is dumb. It's ill-conceived. It's irrational. It's stupid. He shouldn't have done it. But there are worse things happening in the world every single day, all the time, that don't command this type of response. Government, there are things that government should respond to that it doesn't. But something like this, they'll jump all of, they'll trip all over themselves, jumping at the opportunity to signal their virtue and wield their power in the domain of the mind to demonstrate how on top of it they are. I think it signals a gross cultural misprioritization. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. It's not just the law, either. It's not just government reaction, you know, that you had this story with Screamtown where the, the owner did something that was objectively racist, objectively discriminatory against Somalis, and he deserves to be condemned. He deserves to be mocked and called out for a bad idea, bad policy, bad form. But the intensity and the speed of the government response, the government reaction to this really is disproportionate when compared to other acts of actual injustice that government often doesn't react to at all. I'll give you an example. For instance, you know, we talk a lot about, I just saw on my social media feed, uh, a, a national review piece talking about the direct action taking place on the left where as we know, they're being encouraged by uh, elected Congress m members, senators, people within their own party to go out and get in people's faces and to harass and to disrupt and to to keep conservatives from being able to eat their dinner or speak on college campuses and what have you. 
And we've talked about this before, and I framed it as passive tyranny. Because government's one job is to protect your rights. That's the only reason we have it. It's the only reason it exists, is to protect your rights. And so when government, through its through its purposeful action, when an, a college administrator at a public institution, a public university or college, decides that they're not going to provide security for a conservative speaker or that they're going to shut down or, or uh, cast out into some far-flung outside off-campus building a conservative speaker because they don't want to deal with securing their venue, they don't want to respond and hold the, the protesters accountable, that is a passive form of tyranny. It's allowing the thugs to have the day. It's allowing an injustice. That's what it is. It's allowing an actual injustice. And yet, if there's a form of discrimination, like the Screamtown owner making a disparaging comment about Somalis, everybody falls in line. The sheriff's out there. The county board members are out there. You've got instant reaction, instant response to something that isn't even an actual injustice. Like, there's nothing unjust. It's stupid. It's immoral. It's poorly advised to discriminate against somebody based upon their national origin. But it's not an actual injustice. You know why? Because you don't have an inherent right to go to Screamtown. You don't have a natural moral right to be the customer of anyone at all. That's not something you're born with. It turns out that relationships in a moral context are governed by this thing called consent. And consent, by its very nature, requires both parties to agree. And so if one side of the transaction says, you know what, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to do this anymore, for whatever reason, that is their right. So you could say, you could say it's wrong to make that judgment based upon race or national origin you can condemn that choice but you can't claim that it's an injustice because nothing has been taken from you it's not as though you had some sort of property claim to attend scream town or that you've somehow been deprived of something that was your right and yet government reacts to that and it doesn't react to other things which are actual injustices such as when antifa comes to town and keeps you from your rally that you paid a permit in order to have a venue in order to perform or host. Dave in St. Paul, welcome to Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Hey, Walter. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I was honestly looking for the football game tonight. came across your show, first-time listener, and uh, enjoying, enjoying the, your conversation. Uh, question for you. You talked a little bit about your folks and yeah. not being able, them, you know, 10 or 20 years ago or whatever, not being able to get married. Right. Whereas the hayride is like, it's a hayride. No big deal. Right? So my question for you is where do you think, where is the line? Where does it, you know, if, if the response to the hayride was, too much, too quick, bigger problems in the world. Where do you draw the line? Is it like, what if the guy from the hayride had said, uh, not just Somalis, but all black people? Or what if it's uh, Target Field, 
or like like where in your mind I'm where in your mind does it does this response seem to be about right? So the the demarcation line for me is the actual individual rights of the parties involved, right? So it's not so much the reason the comparison the reason I I compare marriage and interracial marriage to this situation is not because of the relative importance of the two. Obviously, marriage, your marital relationship is more important than whether or not you get to go to a hayride, but that's not what the actual issue is, is the the level of importance of those relationships. The issue is that in the one case, you're dealing with your capacity to take action and define relationships within your own sphere, your own domain. I get to choose who to marry, period. It's my life. It's my spouse's life. We consent. It's our choice. It's not subject to the approval or denial of some third party. End of story. For that exact same reason, for that exact same reason, we should not be getting between a customer who wants to go to Screamtown today after this news that the owner of Screamtown is a moron. If the customer, in their judgment, wants to define their relationship with Screamtown and say, you know what, that was dumb, but I still want to go there because I like what they provide, I like the service, then it's their right to have that relationship just as it was my parents' right to have theirs. Does that clarify it at all? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Can we all also agree that Screamtown is a terrible name for a business? Well, I mean, look, if in the context of Halloween you're trying to scare people, I guess it's worked for them for however many years. Fair enough. Thanks for the show, Walter. Appreciate it. Yep. Appreciate you calling in. There was another example of this that I think kind of brings to light the extent to which in the culture people are willing to, or people highly value this concern over racism and discrimination above virtually every other concern in their lives, including in this instance, their own livelihood. So from the root, a gay Trump supporter has a lot of reckoning to do after a video of him confronting a black Lyft driver uh, recently went viral. In a video recorded by driver Sean Pepis Letman, three young men can be seen harassing Letman after he allegedly refused to let them play music, reports Instinct Magazine. The initial argument was not captured on camera, but not getting their choice in music in someone else's car was enough for the three men who had been picked up by Letman after a night out at the bar to go off. One of the passengers, identified as New Yorker Robert Ortiz, decided to call the cops on Letman, at which point Letman decided to record the interaction. And so then it goes on to recount the the content of this 16-minute video in which Ortiz, the, the gay, presumably drunk passenger in this Lyft car, throws racial epithets at the driver, Letman, and you know demonstrates, much as with the Screamtown situation, that he's a moron, right? Now, the the operative conclusion here or the thing to focus on is this Lyft driver has had his account with Lyft suspended after this because he recorded a passenger and put the video out on social media which as it turns out is a violation of their terms of service like I'm guessing that Lyft doesn't want their drivers to go around recording their customers and then put that out on social media so that a, a bunch of people, a bunch of social justice warriors end up harassing them. He was reinstated. He was. How quickly was he re- reinstated? When did you read that? Uh, just today. Or, okay. uh, a girl I, who I'm friends with on Facebook who is a journalist said that he was reinstated. But obviously right. it still resulted in lost wages. Right. 
which is one one of the things that he was complaining about in the wake of this, and that's highlighted over at the root. Now, what I want to point out here is that I've driven for Uber in the past. And as a Uber driver, I've experienced more than my fair share of ugly and disruptive and disrespectful customers. I think everybody who has driven for Uber or Lyft, particularly after bar close, has had an experience along these lines. You grin and you bear it. You take it. It's like being a waiter or waitress. Like you're not always going to get treated well. Sometimes you're going to get treated extraordinarily heinously and you just deal with it. It's a cost of doing business. You know, there's a certain line that obviously violence, somebody tries to harm you or destroy your property at that point. Yes, of course I'm calling the cops, but the guy was calling him names. The guy was a racist. So he called the cops and he streamed it to social media and without any thought as to what the consequence would be to his continued employment, right? The lost wages. And that's because in that moment, the the highest value for this driver was that racism was taking place. This is an instance of discrimination, and it must be documented and highlighted. The spotlight must be turned upon it. We all must pay attention and, and, and notice this. Here, here, there's racism over here. Please come, pay attention to it. That was the highest consideration in his mind. Not getting paid, not doing his job, not being able to continue doing his job tomorrow, but highlighting that racism was happening. It's another example that just goes to show the level of importance, both in the culture and in our law and our jurisprudence, that this topic is given. And the question that I ask is, does it actually merit that level of priority? Does it actually merit that level of attention? 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atzid. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omeland taking your calls and producing the show. We've been talking thus far about racism and other forms of prejudice and discrimination, all of which seems to be of primary importance and primary concern, not just to the left, but in the broader culture as well. I mean, there's there doesn't seem to be anything that triggers such a automatic and intense and all-inclusive response from government officials and figures in the media and the public broadly than a confirmed incident of discrimination or racism. And the question that I've been asking is why? Why is that so important to folks? And my proposed theory is because if you can, if you focus on something that starts and resides in someone's mind, then that makes the mind your domain. And when the mind is the domain of the state, and you have the the pretext to go in there and initiate force to affect change, your power is effectively unlimited. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. I think you're missing a part of it that that it's not just the left that does it, it's the Republicans that do it just as much and they want that power just as much. It, 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 
don't you see that? Even in Carver County, that they're well in 50 cents. You know what I mean? I, you're going to have to give me a, uh, a more clear so, example. So, 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 in Carver County with this whole screen town thing, right? Right. Okay. The correct answer from a Republican libertarian standpoint, right, is okay, so these laws exist. We can't change these laws that exist in the state or whatever, okay? We can't make those happen just disappear, right? Mm -hmm. So the correct answer is to say we don't agree with that. If they come to us and say, well, these people are causing our problem, us as police officers are going to make an individual decision on what we want to do about this, right? That's the right answer and and condemn what he's doing. And then the people underneath of him can say, well, we're going to make our own judgment call whether they're Somalian or not and make the decision to say something about it if it's a problem or not. That's how it should have been dealt with. And then he can be condemned individually or, or people can choose not to go there. That's the way to deal with it because dumb ideas die on the vine. That's just the way they are. They, they, they don't perpetuate. They only last so long because there's only a shelf life, certain shelf life for them. Mm-hmm. Why do you have to push them out of, out of the public discourse? And if we don't have dumb ideas, how do you learn from them? Yeah, I mean, I I think I'm following your point. I I just I don't think that this was motivated by some sort of power hungry desire on the part of conservatives in Carver County to also I'm have the power. Saying, yeah, but I'm not just saying in in Carver County. Do you think if, if nationally, right? Okay. When 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 there's Nazis, okay? Let's just say Nazis because well, everybody hates Nazis, right? <laughs> okay. Do, 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 do you think when the only person that had the guts to stand up for anybody like that, right, was was uh, Trump when they had that that Nazi rally down in the yeah, South. right, yeah. And he said something about it, and everybody denounced him. But what he said wasn't wrong. If there was wrong on both sides, what he said wasn't wrong. But because they were, he was speaking towards Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. They, everybody condemned them, and that's what I'm saying is that you don't think that. The right wants to control what you think because they do. I appreciate the thought, Barry. Appreciate the call. I think I understand what he's trying to say, but I'm not sure I agree with it. It wasn't entirely made clear. Look, if you if your point is Republicans want power, okay, I'm with you. But it seems uniquely it the the social justice warriors are on the left. And, you know, the folks who are the, the greatest sin that you could possibly commit is what this owner of Screamtown committed. The greatest sin you could possibly commit is to say something or think something or do something that's discriminatory in some way against some minority. That is the home for that lies on the left side of the aisle with the Democrats. And I, I think it, it's a natural fit for them because... Ultimately, what they are looking for, it's the same reason, look, it's the same reason why they're, they're focused on climate change and the environment. Because it's an, it's an area where if you, under the pretext of protecting the environment, you have the capacity to basically do, intervene anywhere on anything, right? Because what is it, what's the claim, the underlying claim of climate change? Of catas- not just climate change because the climate does change, right? But this this notion of catastrophic harm created by anthropogenic climate change. In other words, man-made activity, man's activity is going to cause the Earth 
to burn up or freeze or explode or something horrible and a bunch of species are going to die and the the planet's going to kill over like that notion the reason why they pursued that and the reason why that is of such tremendous importance to them is because if you can sell that premise that gives you a pass it gives you a key a ticket into the most intimate areas of our lives because everything every human activity is tied to the production of energy and the production of energy is what they're they're putting forward as the root cause of catastrophic catastrophic anthropogenic climate change and so it's the it's what it leads to this is the common thread the the you can tell why the priority issues for the left are priority issues because of what it leads to in terms of public policy it gives them access to your entire life when they can sell you on the notion that it's the government's domain to protect us from our own activity protect us from our own production of energy in a similar sense if they can sell you on the idea that the greatest social sin is racism or discrimination or or some some form of irrational prejudice against others based upon irrelevant demographic characteristics if they can sell you on that then that gives them access to your mind it gives them permission to come into your relationships and to come into your speech and to come into your what what you your worship and the the way in which you worship it gives them access to everything just those two things climate change and racism and undergirding it in a word we're talking about power that's the whole kit and caboodle. We're talking about power. And that's their their driving force. That's what they're getting after, is the ability to control you. And when you realize that, it calls into question the whole consideration, the whole argument. Because if what they really want is power, then how much do they really care about the discrimination? If all they want is power, then how much do they really care? about the environment and what are they going to be willing to do in order to secure that power 651-989-5855 closing argument my name is walter Atson. twin cities news talk am 1130 103.5 fm twin cities news all right let's hear from you closing argument my name is walter Atson. 651-989-5855 twin cities news talk am 1130 103.5 fm let's start with pete in bloomington welcome to the program Hi, Walter. Uh, I, I disagree with that guy's assessment. I think the assessment he's trying to make, it wasn't very clear. But uh, basically he's saying that the left isn't the party of freedom of conscience, or the right isn't, and, and we're no different. And I, I dispute that the, the right, the conservatives in this country, are definitely the party of freedom of conscience and the party of the Constitution, you know, and upholding the Constitution as it's written, written not reinterpreting it and coming up with all this stuff. Socialist left very much wants to control people's minds, and we can see that in the way they do things. And, the, and to the point of using violence, intimidation, right. kind of crazy tactics. Right. So I, I totally disagree with his assessment. Uh, leave it at that, I guess. I appreciate the call, Pete. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if you you're not going to have to work too hard to convince me that Republicans have too strong of authoritarian impulses. I'm with you there, right? Like I've been fighting that the, my entire life as an activist and will continue to do so. But the trying to compare the two as if they're somehow equal or even similar in their lust for power over the minutiae of our lives, 
all you got to do is, as Pete indicates, is just look at how the two behave, compare the behaviors of both on the ground, in the street, to, to see that there's a, a vast gulf in terms of focus and willingness to encroach upon people's rights. Let's go to Gary in Cottage Grove, my hometown. How you doing? Hey, Walter. I like your program a lot. First time calling. Thanks. A couple of years ago, I went to a church up in St. Cloud, uh, a Baptist church, to listen to a, it was a symposium where two guys from the Middle East were speaking about a... Um, well, they call it a religion. He called it a cult, or they called it a cult. And um, I was really impressed. Three hours of the best um, informative time I've spent in a long time. And the uh, speakers were from out of town, Seattle area, and they were coming back last fall. Um, had booked rooms over at um, a hotel by the Mall of America, right mm-hmm. across north of the Mall of America, mm-hmm. conference room and you know uh, residential rooms to stay and care. Uh, Minnesota um, CARE and the Antifa, anti-fascists, um, phone slammed the corporation, the hotel corporation, and mm-hmm. the actual hotel where they had reserved their rooms on credit cards. Mm-hmm. And and they backed um, they backed down because of the pressure. So, um, and this speaker um, had come from Wisconsin, had, was on the way back to the Midwest and was going to fly after his symposium in Bloomington back to Seattle area where he's a minister. Mm-hmm. He's a Christian minister. He's he used to, he was born in Iran, um, grew up as a Muslim, is an apostate now. Um, basically, the, he, he got a shot of religious um, prejudice, if you ask me, because um, he, he said my credit card was good. They just caved on, on this phone slamming that went on. And um, you wouldn't happen to be talking about uh, Worldview Weekend, Brandon House, and uh, I can't remember the name of the the guy in question. But did, did those names ring a bell? No, it was, this man's name is Sharam Hadian. Oh, okay. um, of Christian Ministry with a podcast out of Bellevue, Washington, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, well, it's a familiar story, so that's why, because it's it's not just him who's dealt with that. But anyway. So, well, Wait, wait. I guess my frustration is is um, how how that seems to be a one way street. You know when right. it seems when the when the minorities uh, in the case of Scaretown or whatever um, when there's somebody that's actually a better name, Scaretown. But right. Um, so, it, but there, I didn't hear a peep about any of these other people like those three that you were talking about. Or right, maybe. right, right, right. Which kind of goes back to my point of uh, it's. It's only a certain type of, quote, discrimination that, mm-hmm. that triggers this sort of massive response, right? It's, it, it, there is no principle underlining that's actually applied across the board consistently. And, you know, the, uh, the other thing that your story brings to mind is the notion that, you know, you, you may very well disagree with that speaker. You may think that what he has to say is terrible and that, that, that people shouldn't go to that event and that it's a bad event to have. But to take it to the next level of actually, you know, we got to make sure that it gets shut down. We got to make sure that it can't happen. It does betray a a tyranny of the mind, a annexation of the mind 
that that is singularly you're absolutely right it's singularly of the left only the left is interested in shutting down people's speech right not combating it not answering it not debating it but shutting it down appreciate the call gary let's talk to william in west st paul welcome to the program hey walter uh been listening to you for a while i have uh, basically only one point um and I'll, I'll take the answer off here um all the all the news that I listen to is mainly on radio. That's where I get most of my information. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of it's biased. <laughs> However, two points uh, on this two two stories you prevented you presented was that uh, Screamtown's uh, owner made an odd comment, and it sounds to me like I don't know who put this tag on it. It's racial, you know, discrimination. However, he has such a problem with Somali youth, mainly males, mostly. Mm-hmm. In my experience, um, you know, there's an issue, so he wanted to get that issue taken care of one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Seemingly, it doesn't seem like the police were handling it very well. Second of all, the person, who, the taxi driver, the Uber or whatever, Lyft driver, who recorded, which was against policy, of course, but yet he recorded not only not for the racial tendencies for it, mainly was because he, he possibly feared for his life. So maybe you know, those are I, points. maybe appreciate it, William. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly don't know what the motivation was in recording it. It seems as though the the most logical assumption would be that he was recording it because he felt as though he was being victimized or he felt like he was about to be victimized or whatever the case may be. The reason it went viral is because this is racism, it's racism, it's racism, and that's it's so important. It's at the top of so many people's minds. And to my mind, it's a B-list social issue, a B-list social problem. It's a problem, yeah, it's something we should condemn, it's something we should combat in the culture, but it, I, it's not the first thing I think of when I get up, and it's not the last thing I think of when I go to bed. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com into a much longer conversation than I thought it was going to be. Not uncommon here on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app and our channel will pop up. You can catch up on all the things we've been talking about. Last night we had Allie Eichmann in here to give the female Republican response to the idea that women have been lost for a generation in the wake of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation, a notion that seems pretty dubious in light of polling to the contrary and in light of the existence of Republican women, including Republican senators who voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh. But, you know, be that as it may, you can check that out by, again, searching for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. Let's pick up where we left off. Let's go to Lisa in New Market. Welcome to the program. Hi, Walter. Hi. Hey, just a couple of quick points. Um, I totally agree with you that the insincerity of the Democratic Party is pretty obvious when they start talking about all of these these things they allegedly care about, mm-hmm. um, especially in light of the fact that Hillary Clinton was all too happy to sell our uranium to Putin, regardless of the kind of world it would make for her own grandchildren, for crying out loud. 
Yeah, it's um, funny how it's funny how Russia went from being our friend to our mortal enemy overnight in 2016. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, I guess that wasn't uh, you know didn't bear enough virtue signaling fruit, you know. Um, but the other thing about the topic with the racism, now I'm not old enough to really recall how things turned around back in the 60s and the 50s. But you know, how did they they get the signs out of the restaurants, you know, no Negroes allowed and that kind of thing. How did that turn around? Was it public pressure? Did the government step in? I yeah. Well, the, the the government ultimately, I mean, this, you know, it's a long story, but the long story short <laughs> is it was a combination of social pressure that ultimately resulted in uh, state action to intervene and create create this concept commonly known as public accommodation, whereby if you open a business, you have a business, the the idea is that because you're open to the public, quote unquote, there are certain conditions you have to abide by, and one of those is that you cannot discriminate based upon race, and oh. ver- and, and it's grown to include various other categories over the years. So does that not apply in this instance? No, it abs- it absolutely does. It absolutely oh. does. And look, I'm not I'm not arguing the legality. I'm not arguing the whether or not. A reaction should have occurred. What strikes me as noteworthy is the intensity and the quickness of the reaction. The yeah. the, the level of priority that's given to this sort of incident. It's there's no controversy involved in it. There's no deliberation. There's no hesitation. There's no sense of scale or proportion. It's just let's pull out all the guns and, and you know ready fire aim. When there's a scenario of perceived racism or discrimination. Well, the hysteria is definitely getting old. I appreciate the comment, Lisa. Let's go to Nathan in Minneapolis, who will be joining us tomorrow night on the program in studio for, we haven't talked about duration, but I read your article today, Nathan, and I could talk for a full two hours about your article at City Pages. We'll get it tweeted out for folks later. Calling in tonight to talk on this topic. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on uh, now and for having me on tomorrow. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about when you talk about uh, controlling the mind and power um, and how you attribute that to the left. Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly think that's true of the Democratic Party um, because it itself is a party that exists to uh, get power. Um, I think it's also true um, of a lot of organizations um, on the conservative side, it was certainly true of the evangelicalism uh, and the moral majority um, in the 90s. Um, I, my mind was certainly controlled by evangelicals um, that told me uh, not to trust uh, science books, that uh, the world was created in seven days, and if the science books said otherwise, that that was uh, not true. Um, I was taught to be suspicious of... Um, other forms of knowledge that that were affirmed by my very conservative church. I was taught to be suspicious of women who were in leadership um, because God wanted men to be in leadership. Um, And so I think that that knife cuts both ways. I think you may be conflating social pressure and the, the, the notion of this is what you ought to think in conversation, you know, offered as part of a cultural premise conflating that with actual initiation of force, 
which is the unique domain of the state or criminals. I mean, those are the, those are the two forces that engage in force is the state and criminals. And in this case, we're talking about the state and to what the question of when do we intervene in people's relationships? When do we punish people for the things that they think and the, and the actions that they take within their private domain based upon those thoughts? And, you know, again, to, to my mind, that's uniquely of the left. You could probably find some right-wing examples of it. I, I don't know that the ones you list would qualify, though. Um, I think that uh, there's, some, that there's some truth to that. I think that... Um, for me, what I am concerned about is the idea that uh, exerting force over people um, through legislation mm-hmm. um, is has become a mechanism of oppressed minorities because they don't have the numbers to in, to create social change through. Uh, societal pressure often because there's not the numbers and also through uh, the democratic process because, again, there aren't the numbers to be represented in a way in government that would meet the unique needs of a minority population. Which it's, it's interesting because that kind of cuts to the heart of what it is that, that, that strikes me as so noteworthy about this entire topic is that the notion that something does need to be done, that some action does need to be taken, ultimately... In the event that somebody discriminates against me in the private sphere, you know they don't want to do business with me because I'm the the uh, in the, a member in an interracial marriage or the product of in an interracial marriage because I'm black, whatever the reason is, they don't want to do business with me because of that. What? How have I been harmed? Like what? What do I have a right to that I don't get to do? What? What property of mine that I rightfully have owned or earned has been taken from me? Yeah, what property of mine have I been kicked off of? So I think <clears throat> I, I'm not sure. I can't speak to that because um, that's your lived experience, and as a white straight dude, it's not my lived experience. Um, so I don't want to weigh in. Well, it's, it, but but what a sidestep! Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. This this isn't a quite. It's not subjective though. I'm talking about the concept of of individual rights and and property and what it is that I have a right to. Like the I. And perhaps this this calls for uh, a broader philosophical conversation than we have time for in this context on a radio show. But my premise is is that your rights are defined by your life because because you're human and because of the requirements that are necessary in order for humans to achieve their values. You you have the right to take action in pursuit of those values. Liberty is a, is a requirement of human nature. And the product of your action in the context of liberty is your property. And that's how your rights are defined. And so if I want to engage in a relationship with another human being, whatever that relationship is, employer, employee, customer, uh, vendor, whatever the circumstances, relationships properly ought to be governed by consent. And so if one party or the other doesn't consent to the transaction, you don't it's not as though you're walking away worse off than you were before you just don't get to have that transaction so for me um one of the things that i think about um as a pastor of a multiracial um youth group um and also as a person who has a primarily somali muslim Mm -hmm. charter school inside of our church building Mm -hmm. um i 
like to know when businesses have a racial bias against people. How can you possibly know that in a context where it's illegal for them to demonstrate it? And so I think that that is one of the main issues with Minnesota racism is that Minnesota racism um, forces racism underground rather than um, exposing it in ways that can facilitate dialogue and positive change because it, it becomes blame and shame and then social signaling among the left to say that I'm, you know, it becomes the sort of woke Olympics um, and falling all over themselves for, for votes um, on, the, on the Democratic Party. I do think, though, that if we had a, mech, a social mechanism to point at racism and then have a conversation about it, that we could turn um, those moments and those occasions of knowing racism into moments for actual transformation and change. I think we just inadvertently tripped upon a point of agreement. And what I would suggest is that the only context in which that can happen is one where people are free to be discriminatory. Because if... If, if the only, here's, here's my thing. As, as the guy who is a black guy in an interracial marriage whose mom was white and whose dad was black, I, I go into a restaurant and for all I know, they're spitting in my food, right? Like I don't, I have no idea whether or not the people who are serving me as ra are, are racist because it's literally illegal for them to act that way. If, if they had the sign on the window that says whites only or we don't accept blacks here or we don't accept interracial couples here or whatever the case may be, then I would know well, that's not a place I want to patronize, and I would, and the the broader society would know this is, as you say, an instance where we can have a conversation about what our values actually are, and we can shame these people for having ridiculous, immoral ideas. Yeah, so I think that's a really, really important cultural thing that needs to happen in Minnesota, in particular, um, because I think that when we have occasions for pointing at racism, if we can point at racism in a way that is meant to be constructive and informative, um, we can actually begin to address uh, racism and change racism, sexism, homophobia, um, instead of what I see is um, white, white people often feel that you don't get in trouble for ignoring race or for uh, not pointing at racist things, but you do get in trouble for engaging with race in uh, if you're not very good at it, you can get in a lot of trouble. Um, and so people don't actually get better at it because the stakes are actually too high for people to learn. Interesting. All right. Appreciate it. We will see you tomorrow. And, uh, again, we'll we'll tweet out your piece at City Pages so people can go take a look at it. Appreciate you calling. All the best. Look forward to it. All right. Brad, you look like you got a headache. Well, I guess his ultimate point I did agree with that we need to have, like, but I but I agree with you, like, he says there's this Minnesota racism. I didn't get the whole Minnesota is angle. racism in Minnesota different from racism anywhere else? Yeah, I didn't understand. Because what he was talking about was just public accommodation and anti-discrimination yeah. law, which is not unique to Minnesota. That's everywhere. Like, I, I, I get the sense that perhaps what was unstated but intended is that because of the whole Minnesota nice, passive-aggressive culture that we have here, that it's not as out in the open. And so it's therefore harder to to detect, and as a result, harder to address. Yeah, 
But, but if that was the point, I, it wasn't articulated as such. But I assume he's a, I, I assume by what he was saying that he supports anti-discrimination laws. Right. But the law is the problem. Right. Yeah, right. So what do you propose beyond that? Is uh, is my next question? Maybe we'll discover. But tomorrow. I did agree with his ultimate point. What was the ultimate point? Because I don't even know if I caught it. Just that uh, there needs to be a social forum for it, and yeah, okay, like, yeah, I agree with what he right. was saying. We just agree with different avenues to get there. Yeah, there was a very different path to the destination. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM. Twin Cities News Talk dot com. Twin Cities News Talk, and 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Let's talk to Todd in Woodbury. Welcome to the program. Hi. Um, first time I've listened to your program, but I get so tired of listening to uh, about racism that's been pushed forth, propagandized by the media, the left, the Democrats. Um, I grew up I mean, I was born in the 50s, so I grew up in the 60s, seeing the local government, i.e. police, treat, you know, black people. But since then, I don't see racism anywhere. I drive for a living, and I don't, I don't go anywhere where I see people being, uh, uh, you know, uh, race-baited or anything else. I don't know anybody that I know that even thinks about racism. Only time you think about it is because the media is out there portraying it. Yeah, well, the definition has shifted. I appreciate the comment, Todd. That, that, and that's that's part of that's that's definitely relevant to what we've been talking about tonight. The definition of racism has shifted over the years, and the left is employing a definition that is something completely different than what Todd remembers from the 1950s and what what conservatives and I would say normal mainstream people generally think of racism as well, even the stories that I've heard from my family and you know, the way things were back when great grandpa, great grandma were alive and grandma was a kid is that the use of racial epithets was very casual and that it was not, it was just a part of conversation. Neighbors would say it. Uh, you'd go to the store and people would say it. There would be no blacks allowed signs around. It was part of, quote-unquote, the culture and the community that this clear barrier and uh, racism was present, and it was relatively casual, and you don't see that today. No, you don't. And and in, and in addition to not seeing that, the, they've had to lower the bar so much that they've lowered it to the point where when we talk about implicit bias, implicit bias as forwarded by Hillary Clinton in 2016 during the presidential election is something that literally everybody is guilty of. And not only is literally everybody guilty of it, but it's there is no solution. And that's purposeful. The reason why they set a standard, that they set a definition for racism that is so ambiguous and so endemic and systemic and prevalent and, and just baked into the cake of our culture and our society 
The reason why they forward that premise is because, again, it gives them the keys to the kingdom. It gives them the ability to intervene and to intrude themselves upon the minutia of our day-to-day lives. Because if they can make the case that it's, it's, you're inherently racist whether you try to be or not, you're inherently racist no matter what you say, no matter what you do, that racism is just part, an inherent part of the culture, then they will always have access, they will always have the, the premise, the pretext upon which they can forward the next item on their agenda. And we see that. We see that in terms of how they advocate and how they pursue their social and their political goals. And it really, it's, it's something that is insidious in, on, in multiple levels, on multiple dimensions. It's insidious in the sense that, first of all, just that it's factually incorrect, right? Like, it takes the agency away from individuals. It, it makes us all guilty, right? We're all guilty. And we're also all victims. And so there's nothing we can do on our own. There's nothing individually that you can do as a moral agent to fix the problem of racism, to either not be racist or to prevent yourself from being the victim of racism. It's just baked in the cake. You are what you are. You're either an oppressor or the oppressed. And, you know, end of story. So it, it creates this unsolvable problem. So it's insidious in that way. But it's also insidious in that it gives it gives them their moral premise upon which they can intrude into your life and intrude into society and turn the dials as they see fit in order to compensate for this claim of implicit bias. So it's, it's really a, a, a deeper slavery than actual slavery because not only are you being kept from doing what you want to do, not only are you restrained in terms of your action, but you're actually denied acknowledgement of your own thoughts. You're actually denied the, any claim of agency over your own mindset and your own values and your own philosophy. Like, you don't get to have your thoughts. That's the level of tyranny that we're talking about. It goes beyond physical governmental tyranny into a kind of cultural tyranny of the mind. It's deeply insidious. Let's talk to Quay in White Bear Lake. Am I getting that right? Yes, sir. Okay. So I've, I've listened to the comments there on that you guys have been speaking about, and it seems as if no one understands that as a black male, I am a black male, that we we have to constantly be aware of our surroundings and to the point where we have to defend ourselves in a public space. We are judged by our names. We are denied job or employment based on our names, even though we have equal, equal qualifications as a, uh, as a, uh, as a white male. People are so inadvertently racist that they don't even understand that they are being racist. It's, it's, it's a complex problem that isn't just, that hasn't just been started by today. It, it goes back to the 1920s when, uh, Birth of a Nation came out where a white male was wearing blackface and automatically a black male was perceived as a threat or a target. When you're, as a black male walking down the street in, for instance, uh, suburban Minnesota, White Bear Lake or, or, uh, Woodbury, and I get the awkward stares of, as if, what are you doing here? Let me clutch my purse and hold my kids a little bit tighter. 
So people don't understand that they're doing it, but it happens. So when we look back to 1964, we look back to Martin Luther King and the I Have a Dream speech and the, the vision that he cast of a future, a world where people will be judged according to the content of their character and, you know, little white children, little black children be able to play together as brothers and sisters. It, when do we get to that? Can we get to that? Or are we locked into this perpetual kind of quagmire, as you describe it, whereby there's this everyday prevalent, systemic, implicit racism that's just never going to go away? I think it starts with changing the Constitution. Even even though the Constitution is what we live by, I'm, I'm a military vet, and I've defended this Constitution. But according to the Constitution, until it was amended, I am still three-quarters of a man. All men are created equal, but black men are three-quarters of a man. We can't change it. We can't make the change until we realize that there is a problem, and we address the problem head-on, and we make the social and economical and governmental changes that need to be implied in order to understand that this is everybody should be created equal. We can live in the fairy tale world where everybody says that we are equal, and we don't see race, and we don't see racism, but it still exists. So, in in what way? Do we need to be made equal that we're currently not? We are we are made equal, but we're still. We're no, I'm still saying constitutionally. You're saying, we, you're saying we need to change the constitution in order to affect equality. What's how, how's that going to work? What's the mechanism? The mechanism is everyone is created equal with no subtext, no no uh, itemization of who is created equal except for this person. Right, but I mean, how, how is that equal point blank and period? How is that not the way it is right now? It is still in, the, in its original text. A black man is considered three quarters of a man, and the Constitution was changed. Right there, there were With several the amendments. amendments. There were several amendments, but even in the even in the original historical context, I don't want to get down the rabbit hole of explaining the history of the Three Fifths Compromise, but the the, the Three Fifths Compromise. The whole, the whole reason why there was a compromise was because people were arguing your very point, that people ought mm -hmm. to be treated equally. And it was a compromise with people who disagreed, and we've made a lot of progress since then. But the question that, that I'm trying to get after is, what change are we going to make through law, through the Constitution, that's actually going to make the world a better place and, and have us result in people being more equal than they are today? I don't, I don't understand. I appreciate the call, quite. I think what he was advocating for was the 13th Amendment. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. He was, he was an abolitionist. He's calling us from uh, a different time dimension. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Boy, little did I know. I, I didn't even need to prep for the show tonight. It's just this one topic is carrying us all the way through. It's kind of going to be like that tomorrow, too, because we're going to have uh, Nathan Roberts in here. Uh, he called in earlier at the top of the hour. 
to talk about his piece over at City Pages, which is all about evangelical Christianity and how it how it's intersecting with progressive politics and how progressive pastors are all the rage right now. And uh, well, you can imagine how that conversation's going to go. It's at least going to be entertaining. So you're going to want to tune in nine to eleven tomorrow. It taking you into your weekend. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Homeland taking those calls and producing the show. Let's talk to John in Eden Prairie. Welcome to the program. Hi, Walter. Thanks for taking my call. Yep. Um, just had a couple of comments I want to get your thoughts about them. Um, I have to totally disagree with that last caller. Uh, in my opinion, it sounded like he was two steps away from being a Black Lives Matter activist. I mean, the way he was going on. Um, I think, in my opinion... If you look long enough, you will find it. I mean, you're talking about racism. If you look hard enough, you'll find it. And for him to go on about, you know, this and that, this and that, you know, they don't like the names and all that, I totally disagree. I mean, um, I transport a lot of older, like, veterans and older black people around, and Mm -hmm. I've talked to them all the time. I say, well, is it better now than it was back then? And they always say, of course, a hundred times better. I would encourage your listeners to, I mean, to think about that like right. you could find any older person who fought in world war ii korea vietnam and ask them like are times better now than right. they were then they'll say yeah. absolutely yeah. so i just i don't know that that guy that last caller just kind of got to me so thanks for taking my call yeah anytime yeah there, there's a couple of thoughts from that one i can kind of relate because the closest i ever got to really being able to to empathize and understand and share that level of sensitivity to perceived racism was in 2016 when the alt-right was revealed as a thing and when it seemed inexplicably as though they were rising in relevance, in mainstream relevance in the context of the presidential campaign and they, they kind of latched on to the Trump phenomenon and tried to ride his coattails and try to siphon off a sense of legitimacy from what Donald Trump was doing. And that concerned me a great deal, you know, again, as a, as a, the product and partner in interracial marriage, when you've got a group of people who explicitly say that my existence and the existence of my children is an affront to the national identity and some sort of abomination and that they're finding new purchase they're finding platforms on which they're being taken more seriously than they have ever been taken at any other point in my life that's a point of concern that that raised concern within me and so there was this period of time over the last couple of years when my sensitivity level which had previously been virtually zero in terms of looking for racism my sensitivity level got ratcheted up significantly and so i started seeing or perceiving what I suspected might be, well, maybe maybe the reason why that guy looked at me that way is because he's racist. Or maybe the reason why the that person said that thing just now is because they're racist, right? Like and I had my brain had never worked like that before. And that was just from like one sort of intense moment in the entirety of my life. And so if you extrapolate that to people who are encountering encountering actual racism on a more regular basis you know there was a guy i knew back in the day coming coming out of high school he was from saint paul and he was a black guy and he was much more racially sensitive like tuned in to to racism and, and all and constantly calling things out as racist 
you know, in our circle of friends and the rest of us were like, dude, calm down. Like it's, it's fine. It's this, there's, this isn't racism is why are you so sensitive? Like we didn't get it, but his lived experience was different than ours. And so his radar was tuned way up. And so I understand that I get how that's a thing that does happen. That doesn't make it like your, your lived experience, your super sensitive tuned up radar doesn't make what other people are doing racist. It just means that you're more sensitive to it. That's point number one coming out of that. Number two is this idea that things are somehow as bad now as they were in the 1950s, 1960s. Not only is that obviously not true, but I think part of what fuels that is that there's, there's a desire, a natural and I, and actually to some extent healthy desire amongst people, particularly young people, to have a cause, to be a hero, to slay the dragon, to win the war, to take to the field, to be a gladiator. Like we all have this within us, this desire to be a hero, to be a fighter, to conquer evil, to be on the side of right. And when you look back at the civil rights era, there's a lot of romanticizing of what took place then that is obviously very prevalent amongst the left. And there's a lot of aspiration to be worthy of that legacy and to continue that work and to also be a hero in that regard. And so you can't be, if, you, if you're if you an aspiring uh, leftist civil rights activist, you can't be the hero that you aspire to be unless there's a villain that you're going to acquire your honor through defeating and so they have to create the villain like if the if the villain isn't actually there they have to create the villain and that's where a lot of this comes from this inflating of what racism does exist into a much bigger problem than it actually is so that you can have a villain worthy of conquering worthy of slaying and defeating and then get the glory uh, as a some sort of magnificent moral social rights activist as a result let's uh talk to chris in minneapolis welcome to the program hey walter how's it going good yeah um as this racism deal when I, I was a kid back in the 70s and we didn't really care what people looked like we just played with the kids at the park and right. i i think what's Stirring up the racism deal is the media. Oh, yeah. Times, every time it's like, oh, the white cop killed the black guy or the, right. the black guy killed the white chick. Or, right. I think the media is stirring up. Cause in my generation, we don't have a problem. We don't, yeah, we don't and, look and, at color. We don't, I don't know. And, don't. I, and I, yeah, I appreciate it, Chris. And I, I came up right behind you and it was the same thing with me. Like it wasn't as again, as an interracial kid growing up in, you know, predominantly white communities and more racially diverse communities throughout the course of my life, race was never an issue. It just wasn't. It wasn't something that was defining of our experience at all. It, in, in fact, it wasn't until getting much much older that race was even really discussed or acknowledged in any significant way other than like history, like reading about it in history 
and seeing it on TV and seeing it in movies. Like, other than that, it just wasn't a part of our day-to-day existence. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Let's go to Ron in Wisconsin. Welcome to the program. Good, good evening. How are you all doing, doing tonight? Doing all right. Okay, I've been listening, and I, I, grew, I was born in the late 50s, 59 to be exact. Grew up in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, so on and so forth. And everything I've seen over my decades in life is that most racism doesn't start, it isn't uh, genetic, it isn't, you ain't born with it, you don't have it when you're a kid. It's taught to you. And if we can stop the teaching, we can eliminate the racism. That's all, all a matter of, you know, doing, doing the right thing and teaching your kids not to be that way. Treat everybody as an equal and not as a lesser human being because of the color of their skin or their, you know, or the way they live their lives, regardless mm-hmm. of whether it's, uh, you know, whether, whatever, you know, your religion, your uh, race, your sexual right. orientation, or any of that. Right. Don't put those things into a child's life, and a child won't grow up with them. Yeah, I have eight children. I have eight children, and I taught every one of them to treat everybody as the same way that they want to be treated. Mm-hmm. And I taught them, you get what you give. If you give respect, you'll get back respect. But if you give, you know, crap, you'll get back crap. <laughs> Appreciate it, Ron. Words to live by. Age-old wisdom there. Yeah, I mean, look, the, what, what it comes down to, ultimately... Is are we going to be rational or irrational? You know, and this is kind of this is a theme of the program. If there if there is one overriding thesis of closing argument, it's are we going to be rational or irrational? And the value of reason and the implications of applying reason to our observations of reality. You know, the racism cannot survive in a context where reason is applied. So that's the answer. Be rational. Demand rationality. Uphold reason as a value, and racism will disappear. But see, that's not... the Part of the problem here, to turn it back to being political, is that the left doesn't want racism to disappear. Because racism has a utility for them. And that's why, you know, going back around to how we started the show, that's why it has this, this, the priority on their hierarchy of outrages. That's why it has the priority that it does. Because the ability to mobilize, the ability to motivate people to come out and to take action and to go to the voting booth and to organize and what have you, the utility of that is so high. It's such a great motivator. That to pursue an actual solution, to pursue a culture where racism actually went away 
or was minimized to the highest extent possible would be to undermine their own power platform, their own power structure. What are they going to campaign on if racism goes away? What are they going to organize people around if they can't claim to be oppressed? And this is the problem. Is and, and, you know, to Barry's point, I'll channel Barry for a little bit here. Both sides are guilty of that, right? They're both, both sides are guilty of having these perpetual boogeymen that they don't actually ever want to go away. Problems that they don't actually want to solve because they're able to campaign cycle after cycle on the same old problems. And, you know, that's problematic no matter who's doing it. But it's particularly insidious when it comes to something like racism. Because it's it's a problem that you that could be solved and should be solved and is actually really easy to solve. And the mechanism for solving it is one that has so many other tangential benefits. Embracing reason as a culture and pursuing rational ends as a society, that makes us all better off. It facilitates real social harmony, genuine, lasting peace. I mean, the, the actual value in pursuing that course is so high that it's, it's, it's astounding that anybody would choose otherwise. And yet they do. Because power is the higher value. Being able to lord it over others is the higher value. And, you know, when we realize this as, as a culture more broadly, when, when we come as a society, as individuals, to, to realize that we're being kept from something truly marvelous, a, a real, genuine progress, actual progress, that the, the alleged professing progressives are actually the ones who are keeping us from real meaningful social progress from which we would benefit in terms of material prosperity and social harmony and peace on earth. When we come to realize that that's what's at stake and how easily we could have it if we just reject the irrationality that's being forwarded by the other side and cast it out and marginalize it, we'll be onto something and we'll be halfway, we'll be 90% on the way to really achieving some marvelous things in public policy. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. 